Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You might think cybercrime is something that happens to other people, but you'd be wrong. Stealing data from public Wi-Fi is one of the easiest ways for hackers to make money. To protect yourself from cybercrime, use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN secures your internet browsing by encrypting data and hiding your IP address. With easy-to-use apps, protect your data with three months free at expressvpn.com huff. That's expressvpn.com huff for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash huff to learn more. On Commons People this week, it's do or die for Boris Johnson. I think that it's a massive opportunity now to get this thing done, put it to bed and, and allow the country to move forward. Can Jeremy Hunt cause an upset? Well, may the best man win and that's going to be me. And the Labour Party dithers on a second referendum. The European Union, no matter what, they don't, they don't give a toss about what the British people now want. Hello and welcome to Commons People. Joining me this week, as ever, is Paul Wall. Hi, Arj. Hi, Paul. Also with us is the former Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Liam Byrne. Hi there. Hi, Liam. Now, Liam, you're here to talk to us specifically about your struggles dealing with your uh, father's alcohol addiction. But first, we're going to discuss another big week in Westminster. Uh, Paul, we're not going to do the Boris League table this week because <laughs> Rachel's not Lucky here. Me. She's off, but I'm keeping a very close eye on it. Uh, this is how many times I say Boris rather than Boris Johnson. I get a fine, <laughs> a forfeit. Well, all the journalists. Well, we all do. Uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm unfortunately way ahead. You're, you're in debt. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. pretty far ahead. Yeah. I'm lucky you're so well paid. <laughs> 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 right, since we came on last week, Boris Johnson has been rocked by revelations about a stormy row with his partner Carrie Simmons, which ended with the police being called to her house. Jeremy Hunt has since tried to close a gap in the Tory leadership race. But Johnson has tried to put daylight between them with a pledge to deliver Brexit do or die by October 31st. Let's hear Talk Radio's Ross Kempsell getting the key line out of Johnson. We need to be putting some money in police. And on Brexit. And on Brexit. Uh, we will, of course, be uh, pushing our plan into action. So we understand. And getting ready to come out on October the, the 31st. 31st, correct. Come, come what may. Come what may. Do or die. Come what may. Do or die. Come on, mate. So, Paul, is Johnson still definitely going to win this leadership race? Well, as you know, I'm allergic to predictions, Arge. Um, but I've just come from the Tory hustings with Boris Johnson and, and Jeremy Hunt in the House of Lords, which is possibly the most refined hustings you'll ever see. <laughs> it was in the Moses room, lovely, you know, wood panelled room. Very hot. A lot of elderly peers in there, but it was packed. Um and it was very civilised and genteel. But the questions, you know, were, as ever in the Lords, quite pertinent. And what emerged from the room is a similar pattern, actually, to the one I had expected, which is there were no real clangers by either of them. Um, Jeremy Hunt was passionate, but so was, so was Boris. 
And the big problem, I think, is as a result that for Jeremy Hunt, unless he really knocks it out of the park, it is Boris's to win. Um, and unless Boris really drops the ball, it, it's Boris's to win. And the thing is, that as with the 2017 general election and as with David Cameron versus David Davis in 2005, short campaigns can win. They can change people's minds, OK? That was, that's what gives us all a bit of drama, a sense of, you know, suspend disbelief in, when it comes to this kind of politics. But overall... Those tend to be the exceptions, don't they? I personally think the elections have won over years, around a few weeks. And similarly, leadership elections. Um, it seems to me that actually the real thing in Boris's favour here is that he's just been around so long. And in a way, it's, we've talked about this before, he feels as though it's his time. In other words, he had a crack last time, it didn't work out. And I got that impression from the, the peers in the room today, and probably the same over the last hostings, even at the weekend, that no matter what Boris says, and he'll, he'll drop the ball on bits of Brexit and it might be unclear, etc. The, the goodwill in the larger party means that it's his to lose. Uh, Liam, can Johnson live up to his pledge to deliver Brexit on October the 31st? I don't think so, not unless there's some pretty significant shifts in Brussels. And you've obviously got a new commission coming in at uh, the end of October, beginning of November. I'm not sure that the uh, outgoing commission is really going to throw Boris a bone. Um, I don't think they're going to sign anything that's radically different off. I don't think they got that kind of uh, wiggle room. Um, so I think the most likely outcome is um, that they'll defer it to the incoming commission, see what they make of it. But I just don't think the, the substance of this deal is going to change fundamentally because the economics and the politics of Europe haven't really changed that fundamentally. We've had a rise in populist parties, that's for sure. But nothing fundamental has really shifted. And crucially, Ireland's core strategic interest has not changed. And that's why the backstop, I think, is going to stay. Johnson's in real trouble then, isn't he? Well, in terms of getting the deal through, or it's, no it, deal. Yeah, I mean, how well, long is this premiership going to last? Well, that's a really important question. I mean, Brexit aside, you might say his premiership, Boris Johnson's premiership might not last long anyway, because mm. there will inevitably may be some sort of blow-ups. Um, but if we are looking at Brexit, I do, the more you look at the arithmetic, the more you think he's going to have to go for a general election, whether by accident or design. And then it gets interesting because I genuinely not sure what's going to happen in that general election. It could it, the the range of outcomes so enormous. It really is enormous. It could be a Boris big win. It could be that he mops up all those Farage votes and it could be that in bits of Britain, you know, Labour leavers believe him and key marginals. It could be that or it could be the opposite. It could be he implodes and people finally think the Emperor's got no clothes. Tories stay at home. Labour somehow has a coherent position on Brexit and, and the Lib Dem vote doesn't we'll come all sort of... <laughs> we'll talk about that later. But you, so it could, you could see either... And, but in the best case scenario for Jeremy Corbyn, I don't think he can win a majority, but he could win largest party. And then it could be interesting. One way to trigger this election could be a vote of no confidence in the Commons to, to block no deal. Liam, do you think there are Labour MPs in leave areas who wouldn't back a no, vote of no confidence in the Tory government? I'm not, I'm, I think most Labour MPs are going to vote for um, a no confidence in, in, in a Tory government. I mean, for, for most of us now, you know, we do confront what, what I've called before a moral emergency on our, in our communities. Austerity is now biting so deeply. Um, you know, food bank demand is up through the roof in our neck of the woods. It's up 20% again this year. We've got homeless people dying on the streets at the rate of a one a fortnight in the West Midlands. I mean, you've just got such a crisis in policing, in schools. Uh, we have 
unemployment up 24% in our region over the last year. So, you know, on, on any kind of um, politician's dashboard, all the lights are now sort of flashing red. And, and we've got to have a change of direction. And I think no matter people's views on Brexit, people aren't really going to be forgiven for passing up the opportunity to, to sling the Tories out. Would it be a sackable offence from the party if someone, say, abstained? I think that, you know, we're heading into a position where um, MPs are going to be seeking reselections. I can't imagine a constituency party taking a benign view of someone who passed up an opportunity to fire the Tories. Yeah, sure. And uh, what do you think Jeremy Hunt needs to do to turn this around in what four weeks or so? Well, he needs to do what Cameron did, which is have a sense of, you know, a fresh approach. You know, everyone forgets that the Tory party, you know, was even older, even more traditional, you might say, in 2005 than it is now. Um, And yet they chose the moderniser. Why did they choose the moderniser? Because they like power. They could see the future. They could see this guy being PM for maybe five, ten years. You haven't quite got that with Boris. So with Hunt, he could be pitching, look, you know, we're looking towards 2027, not just 2022 here. and that might be his sell, as well as just being safe pair of hands, delivering Brexit, all that stuff. A, a, a different kind of Tory. But I think he's got so much baggage on the NHS. Everyone keeps forgetting with Jeremy Hunt how much he's still vilified amongst the NHS staff. You know, um, let's not underplay that. So it's a, it's a tough one. Yeah, and, and the first hustings was on your patch, Liam, yeah. uh, last week. How did that go down locally? Well, I wasn't invited, um, <laughs> but I... Uh, talked about it with um, the Tories Mayor Andy Street yesterday at an event that we were both doing. Um, the Tory party in Birmingham is a bit younger and a bit more diverse um, than the Tory party in the country. But I think the prevailing view amongst most Conservatives, even in a, in a city that's young and diverse like Birmingham, uh, is, that, is that Boris is, is going to win. Um, I think as Paul said, he's just he's laid down those lines um, for so long. And Hunt's problem is he's not really offering a change of course. So ultimately, election campaigns, when you do boil them down, are ultimately a battle of ideas. What, what are the new ideas that Hunt is um, putting on the table that will take our country in a, in a new direction? So in a way, both of them suffer from being continuity Tory. Yeah. You know, they're both offering, you know, what we'd argue is a broken economic model, chuck a load of tax cuts at big companies and rich people, hope the money gets recycled into economic growth. I mean, we have been flogging that model to death, you know, since 2010. It's not working. But both are still pretty locked into it as an economic philosophy. So, you know, what Boris is going to do um, is, is basically win by just almost a, a process of distraction, you know, sprinkling the stardust, if you like, on top of a model which, frankly, isn't very inspiring and isn't really delivering for many people. And normally, of course, the only way of, of upsetting the apple cart is if you're the change candidate, you can say, I am the change, I embody yeah. the change. And in no a matter strange how way, undeliverable the change exactly, is. Exactly, in a strange example, way, Boris is the change candidate yeah. only through Brexit. Because you know, if he does somehow manage to get Brexit delivered, then that is a massive change for a lot of people who wanted it. This week, we're bringing you a very exciting offer from The Week, which you can try free for six weeks. The Week is like your news filter, pulling together the best and most interesting articles from over 200 publications. Whether you're interested in news, sports, politics or culture, The Week is the best place to find out what's happening. It provides the key facts and opinions so that you can make your own mind up on topics ranging from who's going to win the Women's World Cup or who's going to win the Tory leadership. 
and it's a great way of challenging your perspectives. And thanks to Commons People, you can try it free for six weeks. Visit theweek.co.uk forward slash offer, enter the offer code HuffPost for your free six issues of the week. Now, we've touched on it already, but there were stormy scenes at Labour's shadow cabinet meeting yesterday after Jeremy Corbyn postponed a decision on whether to back a second referendum. Again, let's hear Labour MP Ben Bradshaw criticising the delay. I think the longer this goes on, the more it's damaging us. And I worry that the voters that we've left in, lost in droves to the Liberal Democrats and the Greens in recent elections won't necessarily come back. They need clear leadership and they need that clarity and they need to be convinced that we mean it. Paul, what happened yesterday? Well, normally shadow cabinets, nobody briefs out of a shadow cabinet, as Liam will probably tell you. It's very tightly controlled. It's one thing that, you know, you can brief about the Parliamentary Labour Party. You know, gloves are off there. You can brief even about NEC meetings. But shadow cabinets tend to be sacrosanct um, because of the sort of safe space people want to talk, unlike the the cabinet, I have to say. Um, But that changed this week. Why did it change? Because I think the irritation and the frustration just boiled over so much because a lot of the shadow cabinet have been led to believe this was a big moment. Even John McDonnell, who'd gone on record to say there was going to be this white smoke moment and started off the meeting when Jeremy Corbyn said, no, we're going to delay until the unions have been consulted further. McDonnell started off, he was the first one to say, well, hold on, I was told that this was the meeting, we were going to make a decision. And McDonnell, people in the room told me that that was the first time that McDonnell really, really... Um, express that kind of frustration directly to Jeremy Corbyn. Obviously, we know they're very long-standing allies and, and friends. And so that's why it matters. It's as if McDonnell has actually grasped the urgency of the situation. He can see week after week, and not just day after day, but week after week, members leaving, members getting upset, members saying, what's the point? Um, and it's not just members. They're reflecting what's happening in terms of Labour support in their area. So the local elections don't underestimate how bad a result that was going backwards in a local election. The Euro elections were a disaster as well. Yeah. But um, a lot of people have said to me that actually the locals they were quite worried about. Um, uh, and and that spilled over into that meeting. And obviously, John McDonnell wasn't alone, but he was the most significant new voice saying, actually, Remain, it's got to be as not just a referendum, but campaign for Remain. Yeah, Liam, this split um, between McDonnell and Corbyn would have been kind of unthinkable even a few months ago. Well, these are big decisions, um, so I don't think it's a surprise, really, that people are getting impassioned about it. And the timetable is pressing, so if Boris Johnson tries to take us into a no-deal situation end of October, you know, there is quite a high likelihood at that stage that um, the Tory government would then lose a no-confidence motion and then we're into a general election. And at that stage, Labour is going to have to be crystal clear about its manifesto position. Now, just working backwards from that, that means that our party conference at the end of September is super important because that is a big democratic moment for us when the policy, uh, one way or other, is going to get a refresh. Now, for Jeremy, that is very important. I mean, Jeremy is a party Democrat to his absolute fingertips, and he will take a decision and a mandate from conference above all else. Now, therefore, between now and conference, I think you're actually going to see a little bit of this to and fro as people get their CLP motions in place, have arguments in shadow cabinet, make sure unions are consulted. 
But ultimately, it's going to get settled at conference. It's it's more urgent than conference, though, isn't it? Because the last date that a vote of no confidence can pass for an election to happen in time before Brexit happens is September the 3rd. A couple of people have been doing research on this this week, which is the first day back after the summer recess. So this needs sorting out pretty soon, doesn't it? I just don't think that the politics of the Commons is going to shift significantly enough for um, there to be, uh, you know, a, a guaranteed successful no confidence motion until we're through the 31st of October deadline, because it's only at that stage that we're going to know what the Commission is going to do. Are they going to give us an extension? It's only at that stage that we know um, what the new Tory Prime Minister is going to do. Um, you know, we don't even know whether Parliament will take this bold step of potentially revoking Article 50 if the Commission doesn't extend and that's the only way you can stop no deal. So there's a number of scenarios that don't really come uh, and bite until I think after October. So I think, you know, I just think it all points to conference being the key moment for Labour. No, that's interesting because you're basically suggesting you have to wait and see the whites of their eyes on on an, on No Deal on October 31st before Parliament will actually take action. You think it's got to be that late? I think right I think for I think it will be that late for the simple reason that I don't know a Tory MP who wants a general election. Um, that is what they're running away from. I think that's why Jeremy Hunt has been pretty assertive in saying, you know, I'm I'm the no general election in the immediate future candidate. Um, so I just don't think until we get into the whys and wherefores of having to block no deal, will we really get to that stage? And do you think, no though, that, Liam, you know the party as, as well as anyone, do you think actually that the members will be happy if it's, if it's delayed until conference? Or do you think that actually the real issue is what the voters then think? In other words, will the voters... You, you're going to eventually end up at this position, aren't you? It's quite clear. You'll end up in a position where you are backing a referendum and remain. But the voters may not believe Jeremy Corbyn, even after he gets to that ah, position. Because they say, hold on, it's taken him so long to get here. Do I really want to trust him? I, can, I know where the Lib Dems are. It's this point I've just, we made earlier. You make an impression over years, not just a few weeks or months. And if people think as there's a suspicion, well, Corbyn isn't serious mm. about a referendum. He's not serious about Remain. I might as well vote the Lib Dem locally. We, we That's are. really I, difficult, isn't it? I, I, I understand that argument, but I think the... Jeremy's tradition as a party Democrat, if you like, is what trumps this. So, you know, I genuinely do think that Jeremy um, is, you know, is, is one of the biggest advocates for party democracy. He's always had that argument and he's actually made it a characteristic of his leadership. But nonetheless, I think what you're going to see between now and conference is us thrashing out that argument. And, you know, there are differences of opinion in the Labour Party. That's not a secret. Um, and they're deeply held beliefs. Um and we're having this argument that you're seeing in Westminster. We're having it in CLP's meetings, uh, constituency Labour Party meetings up and down the country. You know, right now, I had a big discussion with my constituency party about it last night. Um, others will be doing the same. And there are, there are different views on both sides. At the end of the day, it's going to have to be conference that resolves that deadlock. And where are you personally so far on referendum and remain? Do you think that's going too far? Is that... So my view on this has shifted a lot over the last two years as the deal has basically taken shape. And I don't think, you know, the British people have many um, great attributes, but they're not psychic. They couldn't have predicted the deal that actually took shape. And it looks a pretty fixed deal. Um, it's a terrible deal for the UK. And therefore, how long does it take to vote? I mean, between 20 seconds and 20 minutes, depending if you're a postal voter or you tip off to the polls. I don't think it's unreasonable to ask people to take 20 minutes to sign off on a decision that we're going to have to live with potentially for another 20 years. So 
for those two kind of sh- reasons, really, I have personally moved into um, a position where I'll be arguing for a second referendum, a sign-off referendum, um, and in that referendum, I'll campaign to remain because I just think, for the if, if you come from the West Midlands where we're so dependent on manufacturing and the car industry, the deal that has taken shape is an absolute catastrophe for us. We've already seen investments stall badly. We've seen unemployment rise 24% in a year. Um, we've seen real risks to companies like Jaguar Land Rover. I, I just can't hand on heart um, turn around to say, and say to people that this deal's okay when it isn't. I'd be lying. Now, Liam, you've come on today to talk about an issue very close to your heart, and that's how we treat the children of alcoholics and other addicts. Um, first of all, can you tell us about your own experience of this issue? Yes, yeah, so I grew up with an alcoholic dad, um, and four years ago, around the time of the election, just before the election, actually, um, he, he finally lost that struggle um, and slipped away. And it... it um, knocked me over really it was only after he died that I'd really begun to I had the space really to come to terms with what had happened and um, you know I took lots of advice from family members and uh, thought I was on the road to recovery and then it was actually Joe Cox's murder that then just sort of triggered for me a very deep and and dark slide into what I felt was quite a dangerous place and um, this week I'm talking for the first time about the process of then embarking on 18 months counselling to try and kind of put my life back together, try and come to terms with the past, um, really as a way of just highlighting the need not only for proper support for children of alcoholics, which is a campaign that's now up and running in, in Parliament, but in general for much better mental health services for, for children. In the West Midlands we've had 5,000 kids now present at A&E departments over the last five years having tried to take their own lives. We've got mental health cases for kids rising eight times faster than funding um, and we've got lots and lots of new pressures and so um, I you know I really struggled about whether to speak out about my dad I felt for a long time that it would be dishonoring my dad uh, to talk about something that I'd been accustomed to bottling up with just tremendous stigma and shame but my dad was the son of two alcoholics, and there was no help for him. Um, and so I suppose the decision I took was to try and honour the boy that became the man that became my dad. And did you did you ever think, you know, you, you'd handled this, I imagine, while you were growing up, Liam. Um, did you share it with anyone at the time, any friends? Did you no, it's a very... It's, it's, it's a big, dirty secret, you see, because alcoholism still has such a stigma and shame attached to it and you know what happens in a, in a in a family setting is that you get these weird codependencies so i was the eldest son you know and you know from the age of 6 or 7 i ended up kind of supporting my mum who you know was often freaking out about my dad's drinking and you know there was often uh, you know it was it was often a bit bit of a violent home um with um uh, just a lot of stress and antagonism and and when you're the eldest son and you know you're a little boy you're you know you're just trying to make everything right you're just trying to make everything perfect and so you're so focused on that that um you, you just don't dare tell anyone so you just have these you build up these walls for yourself yeah, yeah. you build you build i mean i sort of described it late in later life as you, you you basically build this kind of armor plating six inch armor plating so that nothing can kind of penetrate it and hurt you um, and, you know, the reason actually that I 
eventually had to kind of go into counselling was that taking that armour plating off for the first time, making yourself vulnerable. Um, it's just so it's so weird that you just fall over, yeah. um, and it's 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 taken a long time to just sort of put together a picture of the past. So the way that I dealt with things and moved on is by burying all my childhood memories. I didn't have any childhood memories. I'd look back on childhood and it would just be a desert because really? I buried everything because it was the only way that I could move on. And even now, four years on, it's it's so weird because. I have memories I've not had before kind of still filtering through like water through a, a bed of sand. It's, but when you're trying to do that work for the first time, you're trying to build, you're trying to kind of piece together a, a stained glass window that's been smashed and shattered and you're picking up these pieces one by one, but they're really sharp and they cut you and you bleed and it's, it's, it's really, really painful. But unless you, unless you build that picture of the past, you're not a whole person and it's impossible to move on. And did you get clinical help then when you, when you, yeah. you know, when you had a moment? Was it just a moment where you thought... After Joe died, need help? yeah, after, after Joe died, I just sort of slid into an abyss. And, um, you know, it was my wife who kind of insisted that this was just the time to, you know, get some proper counselling. You weren't First drinking in yourself and then in London. at this stage, did you? A bit, but I've always been super careful about that. Just, you know, you count your... Yeah. If you're the child of alcohol, you count your units, basically. Yeah. You know, it's not slightly incessantly. Um, no, and, and you know, we went to Scotland on holiday in August, and um, I sort of slept for three weeks, and wow. came back and just started getting that routine weekly counselling in place, and it was bloody awful to start with. It was really, really, really horrible. But and was it hard to get that right start of support? Did you find that difficult? And is that part of what you're talking yeah, about now? Yeah, it was now? quite hard for other people to get the same it, it, support. It was, it was quite hard to find it, but it was there, and I guess. The thing that I want to help try and do, I'm not alone in trying to do this, is as a country, we find some of these things difficult to talk about. Um, but unless we uh, normalise this conversation, then we're not going to make it normal to access help when you need it. And, you know, I I just don't, I don't want my kids to grow up in that kind of world. I want to, my kids to grow up in a world where it's okay to reach out to help if you're hurt and that does require really really substantial reinvestment in reconfiguring our mental health services so they're more available in schools so they're more available in community settings so they're more available in in medical settings um it's 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 one of the most important things that we can do and i can see it in the context of the community i serve you know unless we get better mental health services in the communities I serve, I serve the most income-deprived constituency in Britain, we're not going to tackle youth unemployment. You know, it's part of the policy mix that we've got to put in place in actually to help poor areas regenerate because in poor areas, mental health is terrible, absolutely terrible, and it's a massive impediment to getting people back into decent jobs. And are you through it now, your treatment? Or do, how, does it, how does it work? Yeah, is it-, it was kind of 18 months pretty much weekly, um, so it wasn't a short-term thing um when i started i started with a very profound sense of failure my mum died of cancer when she was 52 um on boxing day 1997 and that had been what had triggered my dad's slide into alcoholism they, i mean they were so in love um they just you know they'd adored each other and, uh, and and they'd saved each other from you know they both had pretty difficult childhoods um and i just you know i hadn't been able to save my mum and i hadn't been able to stop my dad from drinking and and so that 
real sense of, of failure is absolutely corrosive. Um, and if you're the child of an alcoholic, you know, you're, you, you just don't think you're allowed or permitted to be happy. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's not great in a husband. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Or a father, yeah. you know. And so... Are, are your kids quite young? Or are they, or uh, they're kind of 18, right. 17, 15. Yeah. Um, but going through the teenage years, well, you're doing Going through the teenage was, years, was, yeah. Was, yeah. I, I, I you know, fortunately, in some ways, I was kind of, you know, I'm in London four days a week and they live in, they live in Brum. Um, but it's... I, 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 when I started, I had read all the literature on recovery and yeah. flourishing and you're a smart all that guy imagine you did all your research, did all the, research. <laughs> the burn approach and I didn't believe a word of it you right. know, I, I basically I didn't think that recovery was possible I didn't think I was ever going to be allowed or would allow myself to be happy um, and and yeah and that has changed fundamentally so you know I came to see I came to see from the evidence that that kind of psychological recovery is possible Becoming a three-dimensional <laughs> member of the human race is is, is nicer <laughs> than being a kind of a two-dimensional person. Um, it's you know I'm now kind of in touch in in a way with my child in a way that I wasn't, and and I'm a happier person. Um, and it's completely changed the way that I do politics. It's taken me on this really um, deep journey into working with our city's homeless community because you know what I I realised is that. Uh, when I started working with homeless people, is that they were a lot of people I met were basically self-medicating trauma with heroin and alcohol, yeah. um, and that's actually for me when the penny dropped because that's when I realised actually there, but for the grace of God, went my dad. Um, I mean, God knows I spent enough time in intensive care units with him and picking him off floors and making sure he was fed and, and, and okay. Um, but you know, I, could, I suddenly saw that actually if you don't have that family support network at the moment because the safety net in this country is now so shredded you just go straight through you go straight through the holes and you hit the pavement and a, and a lot of the homeless people that I work with now are in pretty advanced states of um, some trauma a lot have worse mental health problems you know schizophrenia mm. bipolar um, and the support is just not it's just not there for them but you know many of us could be in that position it could it could hit anyone and therefore it affects everyone and and that's why you know i believe so strongly that there is a moral emergency there which is as a society we've got to step up and fix it was interesting there's quite a few politicians high profile people in politics who've talked about both alcoholism and mental health you've got john ashworth obviously alistair campbell made yeah. great strides on it but do you think that actually even though alistair for example has been talking about it for a long time do you think we're still quite away as a public from from still grasping it do you think a lot of it is still talk rather than action well a lot of it is talk but the chorus line of talkers is definitely growing and i think that is important in helping people see that this is just not a one-off here or there this is actually something that affects us as a society as a whole um the action is not yet there i mean let's be honest i mean the the mental health services in the nhs do a heroic job but they are just so critically underfunded at the moment and they're still very focused on pharmaceutical um, responses to it so you know talking therapies counseling um, uh, you know, I would you know I think are, are, are really effective too but I just I fear the resources are not there and when I talk to parents in my constituency they're really alarmed about the pressures on kids today from social media or peer group pressure 
and they think the pressures are growing and the services just aren't there at the moment. But we can't move poor communities on without including mental health services in the policy mix. Um, and yes, there's a load of other stuff we've got to do to rebuild and remodel our economy, but we have to make sure that mental health services are part of it. That public health answer is part of how communities flourish, not just individuals. And is that partly, finally, one of the reasons you, you're going to be running for, for the mayoralty in, in, in West Midlands? Is it that you've changed your, you said you changed your politics. Is it you've actually decided, look, I really want to look locally, my area, I want to fix something that I can control. It's not necessarily a, a big national thing for me now politics it's a focus and it's about people i know is, it, is that partly the reason yeah i mean it allowed me to kind of go back to 18 months counseling allowed me to go back to my roots i joined the labor party when i was 15 i was radicalized by the miners strike i couldn't bear the sight of miners being baton charged by police um and i was you know quite a radical young man and that's that that's what i've kind of rediscovered if you like in just tackling the moral emergency of hunger, hunger and homeless families. You know, that's um, it's partly the times. I think um, it's partly because it's just not morally acceptable to have homeless people dying on our streets. And when you work with the homeless community, you you feel that pretty viscerally. Um, and you know what I notice doing work with homeless people, or indeed you know collecting for food banks, there's a lot of faith groups and there's a lot of labour people. And for a lot of Labour people now, we're going back to our roots as a movement, as almost as social workers. Um, Clement Attlee, who you know had the best haircut in Labour history, um, <laughs> wrote a great book in the 30s called The Social Worker, and he basically argued, look, if you're if you're in the Labour Party, you are basically a social worker because you believe in building society. You don't build society without helping individuals who are in it and helping nurture the relationships that connect us all together. So I think it's partly the times for me personally. Um, yes, it's been a bit of a journey, a pretty painful journey over the last sort of three or four years. But ultimately, the bottom line is I'm just not prepared to be a bystander while homeless people are dying on the streets of our cities. And that, that Liam Byrne that was a cabinet minister that was ultra confident, the guy that was, you know, we all saw totally on top of his brief, brilliantly erudite does that look like a different person to you now that because you were holding something back at the time oh, that none of us knew about god yeah i mean the, 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 if you if you're um the child of an alcoholic you you are basically um you don't you don't have a sense of what normal is so you invent um models to live up to so you become um this incredible perfectionist and then you flay yourself remorselessly for not living up to those standards um, and it's a it's a really common trait, and um, it's it, it makes for a life of failure because no no one could ever possibly live up to these impossible benchmarks that uh, children of alcoholics invent for themselves. Um, so yes, I mean that is absolutely you know why was that is I'm afraid what you were observing back then. <laughs> I, I actually had one question as well, which is kind of similar to what Paul asked. Do, do you think being in politics made it harder for you to? to confront these issues and deal with this, these issues or, or any difference at all? I think it was harder to start with because, you know, politicians are still um, a little bit obsessed with image. And I think for a long time, politicians have been really fearful about looking weak or exposing weaknesses or talking about weaknesses. Um, I'm 
I'm I'm blessed in that I've just you know I've made so many mistakes in my life that I don't need to care about that any longer. <laughs> so I think the politicians, I think, um, yeah, I, th- I think politicians can um, shy away from confronting some of those things. I mean, there are a lot, there are a lot of children of trauma in the House of Commons. It's partly because of the perfectionism, actually. So if you're you know if you if, if you go through that trauma as a child you you're trying to put the world to rights you're trying to rearrange things and make everything okay um, and that does take a lot of people actually on both sides of the house um, into, into politics that's really interesting thanks so much for coming on to yeah. talk about that Liam it's um, really interesting and important um, time's running out but it wouldn't be common to people without a bit of a quiz <laughs> yeah now so. here's the chance to prove your lack of perfection as <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I do every thank, week thank, you for, that oppor- thank you for that opportunity it's not my best quiz I have to say but this week's is on takeover prime ministers so Ooh. PMs who come to office via a party leadership change rather than a general election yeah. mm. so question number one just just come in whenever. There's no real rules. It's totally arbitrary. I might give you a point for effort if you're lucky. <laughs> um, there have been seven takeover prime ministers since the Second World War. Seven? Seven. Seven. Wow. Who were they and which positions did they hold in the you cabinet? Want us to ask every one of the seven? Wow. Callaghan and Brown. Yes. Brown, definitely. I remember that. Callahan. Jim yeah. Callaghan, who was Foreign Secretary before. Yes. Uh, obviously, Theresa May. Yes. That's three. Who? Eden. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Can't remember Douglas what position Hume? he was before. Douglas Hume? No. no. Did he get... Uh, was he... Oh, sorry, yeah. Douglas yeah, Hume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, how many is that? Five? Four? Uh, you've Five. got uh, two left. It's not that hard, is it? Mm. Must be Tories. Yep. Because yeah. there's not been that many they Labour got, Prime They've got to be... The, the, um, uh, I think it's just the Labour Prime Minister we had we were in for a long period of time, Paul. I think that was. The <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, one really obvious one. Macmillan. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 Macmillan. Yeah, There's an even more obvious one. Thatcher. No, no. she wasn't, no. Because she won fair and she'd square. gone through the leadership election. Major. Yes. Major. So, See, there we go. There you go. Now, now the, major. there's three cabinet jobs that they held, you know, beforehand. X amount held one, X amount held oh, the other yeah. beforehand. So, um, the Liam's so the, the, named one, which was... Um, yeah, so Callaghan was Foreign Sec. Yeah. Brown was Chancellor. Yeah. Um, Major was Foreign Sec. Yeah. No, he was Chancellor. He was Chancellor. He was Foreign Sec. He was a very... He was very briefly Foreign Secretary, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And then he was Chancellor. Yeah. So it was another role, another cabinet role, you think? Yeah. Home Secretary. Okay, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Brown, Major, Macmillan, Chancellors, Callaghan, Douglas Hume, Eden, Foreign Secretaries, and May... Home Secretary. Ah. Right, question number two. Which of those takeover Prime Ministers won the next election after taking over and which lost? Major obviously Major won. won. Yeah. Uh, the others didn't even fight. Some of those Tories didn't even fight. Didn't well, Douglas, well, Hume, Douglas May, Hume lost. May technically won. Didn't he? Yeah, technically. That's true. That's true. Te- yeah, yeah te- technically. Douglas Hume lost to, to Wilson. Right. Douglas Hume lost. Yeah. Um, uh, Callahan lost. Yeah. Brown yeah. lost. Yeah. Eden. Yeah. One. Did so, he? Yeah, you'd got everyone else. So, well, oh. this is uh, some good quizzing, guys. Is <laughs> this, this is really impressive. Right, well, it's not, it's not, it's not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> We're just old. 
definitely <laughs> errors in some of these answers. Uh, right, just final one. Who is the longest serving of the takeover prime ministers? Oh, God. Post-war. I bet it was major. Major. Yeah. Most How many years? years. Yeah. yeah. Bang on, Liam. <laughs> we lived through Fantastic. it. You were a whippersnapper. I lived through major <laughs> and brown and May. So <laughs> I've had three of the seven. So. And they're anyway. all completely, you know... Not very democratic, each of those takeovers, one might argue. Yeah. Well done. Uh, right, that's all we've got time for. Um, we're going to leave you with our likely next takeover prime minister, who isn't currently a cabinet minister, revealing just how he switches off from the pressures of the leadership race. I have a thing where I make models of... I mean, when I was in like, where mayor of London, we build a beautiful... I make buses... You make models of buses. I make models of buses. See, they're going to be do, in Downing Street. So, so what I do... No, what I do make models of buses, but what I, I make is... I get, I get old, um, I don't know, wooden crates. Yeah. Right? And then I paint them. And they, and they have two, two... I suppose it's a, wine, it's a box that's been used to contain two, two wine bottles, right? Right. And it will have a, 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 a dividing thing. Yeah. And I turn it into a bus, and I, so I, I put passengers. You really want to know this? You're making buses. You're making cardboard buses. Okay, that's what you do to enjoy yourself. I paint, no, I paint no. the passengers enjoying themselves. Okay. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.